This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Join the club by visiting charcoalbookclub.com and use the promo code the candid frame at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. Photographers record history, events both big and small. The work that inspires me most is often the visual history of communities. They are the stories of ordinary people and cultures that often don't find their way into history books, but are just as important to document and memorialize. Merrill Meisler's new book, Paradise Lost and Found, does a unique thing by examining different facets of New York during the 1980s. Her photographs capture the everyday streets and neighborhoods of Bushwick and the nightlife of the disco era. It brings a blend of people and stories that reveal a very personal glimpse into a unique time in the life of a very unique city. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. So how was your trip? It was amazing. I can't believe it happened. You know? Yeah. Just um, so, such a privilege and to be, to be to have the show, to be invited over, to they got a grant to bring me over, the exhibit. I mean, I've nice. never been in Berlin. Um, haven't taught workshops in a long time. It, it, it does. It was. It was fantastic. Very lucky person. What was the work that you were that you were showing there? They took a. They curated sixty-five photographs from all three books. It was. They went through all three books and made a selection, oh, wow. which is which is fantastic. I love being curated. Okay, you look at your you look at your own <laughs> stuff so often, and you know, in isolation, it's so wonderful for other human beings who have a passion about art, photography, whatever it is, bringing their dear perspective and, and decide how to install it and everything else like that. So it was, it was great. A wonderful, wonderful gallery. It's like, uh, like what, what, what we would call a not a nonprofit here. Oh, nice. They really do great work. Oh, beautiful, beautiful, and in and in, in Berlin too. So yes, nice. yes, sir. And it was my first plane ride. Well, I I love the new book. Thank you. Oh, since COVID. Yeah, yeah. my COVID. Yes, yeah. No. no, no. I just like you mentioned. This is your first trip during during COVID. That's very next. I have. It was you? great. Really, since since March twenty twenty, I haven't gone anything place. I'm not complaining. Besides Woodstock, New York City. A sister-in-law in in Connecticut, a sister-in-law in Long Long Island, and one day, one day drove to Northampton for something. Nothing. Oh, and a funeral. You know, it's like it was the first adventure out. But you know, of course, very traveling is. You need a PhD in paperwork and uploading COVID (laughs) documents. But but it worked out, and it was it was. It felt great. It was less, you know, it's done. I did it. I can go on a plane. It was fine. <laughs> it's yeah. 
going to new places. Well, congratulations. Thank you. And when were we in Miami? Was that three years ago? Yeah, a little more than three years, more than three years ago. I think four. No, I don't think so. I think it's I four think. years ago now. Yeah, really? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, three, somewhere in there. I think I'm going to guess three. We'll have to look it up later. But, uh, okay, before COVID. Since my, my memory is so poor, I'll. I'll, I'm gonna I'll let you yeah, out. I'm going to say 18. I'm going to go, go 2018. Okay. Okay. Well, the, the book I love so much. I got it in my hands, uh, I think a month ago, and I just couldn't get enough of it. I mean, I already love your work, but I really loved the fact that this is really different from work that I've, I, I've seen elsewhere, <laughs> where when a photographer is focusing on, on a community, and it's very sort of narrow in terms of what they're covering, mm -hmm. right? But you cover, you know, so much about the culture during that time, and it's all encapsulated in, in one in one selection, and it works so well together because it gives you a sense of a fuller sense of what New York was, especially the New York that wasn't showing up on films and television. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's a New York that I think most people who were living in New York were experiencing. And which one are you talking about? <laughs> are you talking about the nightlife or are you talking about both? Well, it's the one that the I relate to. Which one? Both. Oh. Both. Because this, this is the way I, I, I see it when I was looking at that. Because I, I grew up in South LA here in Los Angeles, which has a lot of similarities to, Brooklyn, mm -hmm. to, to Bushwick. Okay. So primarily lower income. Mm -hmm. You know, life can be really tough. It can be very challenging. There's a lot of density in terms of population, and like Vanessa wrote in in her uh, intro to the to the book, it's largely perceived as largely negative by people outside of the community, mm. and they sort of dismiss the fact that there's a lot of good things that are happening there in terms of family, in terms of friendship, in terms of community, and also the fact that a lot of the people out there, despite the challenges of living, when it comes time to party they party hard yes. and it's kind of like a release from all the stuff they have to contend with. And I saw that reflected in the book. And that's why I just, I had such an affinity for it, even though that wasn't my experience being on the West coast, it still made completely a whole lot of sense to me. Thank you very much. I said the only thing that I would say would be different at, in that specific community of Bushwick in the time in LA was that it actually was not dense at the time because there was less housing because there mm -hmm. were less inhabited homes. So that was something that was a little different than most, what someone would call quote, inner city, unquote, there was, there was a lot of space <laughs> to, and a lot of people moving out, oh, yeah. but you were, you were a, a little, you just a few, a microcosm within, within a much larger city. So it's still is uh, more dense than most sub suburbias and and anywhere else. Interesting. Yeah, and I love the I love the intimacy of the book. I mean, that's something that's often sometimes lacking in the photography. And we've talked, you know, in our last interview, we talked about you know you being teaching and you actually being part of sort of the club scene uh, as a you know as as a party going and also as a, as a photographer. But t tell me when you started seeing the connection between the two bodies, bodies of work, when did that start making sense to you as, 
an amalgam. Oh, God, it's so weird how it happened. I was starting to show, digging through my Bushwick work through many circumstances in 2007 and showing it in, in Bushwick at the Bushwick Open Studios. And in 2014 to 2013, someone who had seen my work at 2012 Bushwick Open Studios, his name is um, a Frenchman with an accent, with a French accent, moved to, to Bushwick and was researching the neighborhood because because that's what people, smart people do is they learn about where they <laughs> or <laughs> learn about where you're living. And he came upon my photographs and he, he was wanted to come and see the, meet me in person and say hello and say, I love this work. Great. So that's 2012. 2013, same thing. And I'm actually having the, the woman, Vanessa Martier, that you're referring to is a young woman who found herself in my photographs. And we collaborated on two exhibits during Bushwick Open Studios at a place called The Living Gallery with her writing and my photographs because they were kind of the same story. 2013, we're showing again. And when you're in part of Bushwick Open Studios, it's like a marathon weekend, like nonstop. And we took a break to go to lunch down the, down the block, and which was when I was working, there were not too many places to go and sit down and have lunch. And we walk into this place called Bazaar that had opened up. It was a, a, a new nightclub drag burlesque bar that during the day was have, had a restaurant. We walk in and the guy, someone at the door opens his eye, arms and hugs me and said, this is my place. It was the same man, same Frenchman who had seen me at my work the year before. This is my place. And he's telling me, Yo, you, I, I love your work. Um, you're, this, you're welcome. This is my bar. And downstairs is a basement. I'm going to turn it into a gallery and show work like yours. So we go downstairs to look, and he's a filmmaker, and he had stills from some of his films on the wall. I, I said, and I said, oh, how's it going showing your work here? He said, well, it's fine, except for that it is a bar, and people do get drunk and take the work off the wall and <laughs> or try to steal it or just take it off the wall. It's like, oh, that's interesting. I go back up. I talk to Vanessa. I said, well, that's great. I've shown my work in museums and galleries, and here we are. I'm at a drag burlesque bar in Bushwick where they he wants to build a where there's a gallery in the basement and people rip the work off the wall and he wants to give me a show. And she looked at me very <laughs> straight face and she said, Don't be such a snob. I was like, Oh <laughs> so that, that was interesting. A couple of weeks later I do a, uh, another event at this living gallery and there was a, another event at, at Bazaar. So I went to Living Gallery first, and then I just said, oh, I'll go to see Bazaar, to see what, see what it's like, time, like at nighttime. Go in, and the play is packed. Everyone's dancing. It's fun. It's, it's energetic. I go into the restroom, which is, had mirrors all over. And I'm fixing my lipstick, and I, I look overhead, and there's a disco ball in the bathroom. And there's a disco ball in the major room where everyone's dancing and, and to music. And I had an aha moment, an epiphany looking in the mirror. I realized that my life and worlds collided. I didn't put it into words, but I, I had this, I had this realization that when I was going to discos in the seventies and early eighties, you, they would, this, 
the more highfalutin uh, clubs wouldn't even let people in who they thought were the bridge and tunnel crowd. Yes, from uh, the outer boroughs of mm-hmm. Queens and Brooklyn. And that I had learned about Bushwick on the night of, of the big blackout in New York City in 1977 when I was supposed to go to a private party in Studio 54. And it was a, no one knew, but it was a big blackout that happened. I tried to go there, banging on the doors. It's not open. And the next day, I and, and, but I felt like the world, but probably just New York City centric, heard of a neighborhood called Bushwick where there was rioting and looting and it went on for days and, and put it out of the back of my mind. It had, you know, had nothing to do with me. It was just someplace I'd ever heard of. My family's from the Bronx. You know, I, maybe I went to Coney Island, heard of Park Slope out, out of my, out of my realm. A few years and well, four years later, I'm teaching there full time. And I taught in Bushwick for 14 years. And it hit me in that moment under that, when I had the epiphany that my worlds collided, not just New York. It was like New York City story of my story. Now the hot scene was Bushwick. That was a nightclub scene. And a lot of artists had moved there. And it just, like I knew the work belonged together. And this bar would be the perfect place to show it. So I went out. And I saw, saw John Stefan, and I said, you're still interested in showing my work? No, first I asked, how's it going in the basement? You know, showing work in, in the basement, this sort of stuff. So we got it down. It's good. We, we bolt the work into the wall so people can't take it off. I said, okay, good. <laughs> and, then, and I said, are you still interested in showing my work? He said, Yes. I said, next June for Bushwick Open Studios, because I knew the Living Gallery, which I had shows the two other years, was changing its format. They were doing more pop-up shows. And he said, of course, yes. And then I came back a few weeks later to ask him and his business partner, because I realized I interrupted them in the middle of like a big, busy night out. He said, you're still interested? I said, during Bushwick Open Studios, he said, absolutely, yes. It's history. Okay. So I, in my little mind, I knew I was going to put this work together. I didn't even tell him. <laughs> Come February of 2000, it was either late January or early February of 2014 is a freaking major snowstorm, the kind that you ran away from. I was so glad when you when people smiled that I'm in California or I'm in Florida and we're having like record <laughs> snowstorms. And John Stefan Sauver emails me, I want to meet with you. You know, come to the club. And there's some kind of Bushwick nightlife awards that night. I said, okay. Well, I took the subway and I met him, trudged through feet of snow, met him. And he looked at me and says, I want to make a book. Love your work. I said, a book? You mean a catalog? I mean, the show, this is February. The, the show's in June, beginning of June. And pr- truthfully, I had been applying for for a real publisher to show my Bushwick in the 80s work because it was getting a lot of attention. And I just really thought this man's nuts. He says, no, a book. And he takes us a hardcover book. He says, I want to make a book. And I said, well, I don't want to just show my Bushwick work. It's a long story, but I want to show my Bushwick with disco together. They go together. It's the same story. It's, you know, I, I can explain it. It'll take a little while. And I don't even know if I explained it. He said, well, Disco, can I see the can I see the work? I can see the photos. I said, Well, I have to find them and scan them because I've never shown them to anybody. 
and he's a filmmaker who's going off to do some projects in South America. I was familiar with it with much a lot of my Bushwick work, or I thought I was, from looking from doing several shows with the work and looking through it again and again and again. And I literally would take went to my the years where I, where I was going out at night discos, picking up the negative sheets, holding them to the light, and saying, "Oh, that's a match. That's a match." I just had I had to, I had to work really fast, scan them, put put together some juxtapositions, and I showed it to him on email. And all of a sudden, he said, "I got it." And then we started playing back and forth where I show some ideas. And it's a, and in my, my mind, I was like, there's no way a book is going to happen this quickly. But, you know, it's, it takes as much work to play an exhibit, or I thought, as to put a book together. And my wife, Patricia O'Brien, who you met, she, she's a designer for a broadcast designer. Okay, she'll design a book. We just, I, we're like the little rascals putting together a book. But we did it. <laughs> <laughs> we did it. And it came out, you know, planned it in February and came, it was out in June and printed 1,500 copies. It's called Bizarre Publishing and it made a racket around the world. And so that's how, that's how this work came. That's how I realized these two bodies of work come together. So you never know where inspiration will come from. Mine came from being doing a lipstick check in a drag burlesque bar in Bushwick. I love that. So, One of the things that's really um, interesting for me is the fact that you were shooting for years, and this is just stuff that you were enjoying doing. You didn't have any sort of plans to eventually have a book or an exhibit. You were just producing these, these, these images. And now that, you know, you've, you've had several books, you've had these exhibitions, you are able to experience the image images that you created through other people's eyes right because mm-hmm. these images are, are a reflection of your life it's not like you oh i'm going to work on a project and i'm going to choose no this was your life as a teacher as a commuter going back to where you lived and going into bushwork to teach going to the clubs and as you just, as you just said this these images are now being looked at as a part of history mm-hmm. but tell me you know, through the process of, of getting your work out there, what have you learned about your work that you don't think you would have discovered otherwise hadn't been for all these opportunities that have been presented to you over the years? At Baryonyx, that's a very deep and, and great series of questions. I did not realize that my pure photographs, because I've always been showing my work throughout my teaching career for decades, mixed media with photography, painting on photography, digital imaging, I never realized the strength of the pure image. That's one thing. Okay, two, I had no idea that my snapshots of Bushwick would be so historically important and rare. Number three, I didn't even, it wasn't until I started scanning, until the book came out, because I, that I even thought my disco photographs were special in any way. There were so many photographers documenting for, you know, the disco scene. Uh, They were paparazzi, I mean, magazines. I, I was just taking them because I was doing other things during the day. I was a, a photographing Jewish New York for Cedar Project. I, would, I was doing it because it's what we love to do. Now I, we, we're photographers. We love taking pictures. Oh, we love the act of photography. 
I didn't see the strength and the beauty in of them at all. It wasn't so, like when I first started looking at my slides of Bushwick in 2007, through it, which, which was a really odd thing, like an, a, a teaching colleague of a former colleague applying for a, a an exhibit at Brooklyn Historical Society. And I started dig, opening these boxes called Bushwick. And even then, they would, that the photographs were taking with a point and shoot and camera and some of them were blurry and they, you know, they, they were not going to have free deaths of field or nothing. I, and, and Bushwick wasn't really as hot as it is, is now or became. I started seeing the humanity in the pictures and the beauty of the people in them that even have the exhibit, I didn't know that. I thought they were just funky pictures. They even had you know, dust on on the slides. It was near a wet wall. I had to I had to retouch the green spots on things. I was able, or started becoming able for the first time, sitting beside myself, looking at my work objectively through the eyes of someone who loves photography, looking at the work of this person who's under under recognized and whose work it really has not been scene. Her name happens to be Meryl Meisler. And I'm looking at it again and again and again and seeing the beauty in it, the history in it, and the joy of humanity, community, photography, and admitting to myself, this is beautiful work. And it's to, and and the reason and say so this book, this third book, Paradise Lost, you do was so much. I didn't think that first book was going to come out. I, I think it was a miracle. I mean, did it so fast. I hadn't even looked through the work at, at well. I didn't understand. You know, like I'm gaining understanding of my images. It's hard to edit your work. As I said, I love being curated. Oh yeah. And so mm-hmm. through the having done the first book, which was about just. A Tale of Two Cities, Disco Era Bushwick, which was about Bushwick and disco. And the second one was Sassy 70s, about my growing up on Long Island with with some nightlife and and street photographers in New York City. And then the opportunity to be in several shows about even about nightlife where I had to go again and again through the photographs looking for these curious work. And I was like, but look at this image. Or I didn't dare show this one before. You know, did I... It was going deeper. And for the third book, I was like, but you know what? Not only there were pictures I held back or didn't understand, I didn't show that the, the inside view of a teacher because I wouldn't have been there if I wasn't a teacher. And I've definitely, it's important from the insider's view why, why this was became someplace familiar to me. But I also like in the experience of looking through your work again and again and again with fresh eyes. Like when you see somebody here in New York, it might be the subway. You see somebody reading the Bible, the Quran, the Torah. They're reading the same passages again and again and again and getting new meanings. They're discussing it with other people and and looking through it again and finding different interpretations and personal personal interpretations, community interpretations, linking to history, what well, maybe it's fantasy, finding deeper meaning. I feel like this has been a process I've been going through, looking at it again and again and again and finding new connections, sparking new memories and 
funny personal meaning, personal meaning that it also is the same, you know, human connection. It's, it's a human experience that, that we share. So it's, it's been quite a process. I mean, I think, like, I feel like I've gone, say, say, to, say the boxes marked Bushwick, I feel like I've gone through all of them, but probably not. I'm sure another one will pop up that I didn't write the word Bushwick or 291 on the, on the box. <laughs> but I feel like I got the essence and this book needed to be, needed to be birthed. It, it was my uh, pandemic project, but it, it worked on it. It worked on this past book more than any other, other one. And John Stefan Sauvaire of Bizarre Publishing he actually, uh, because of events related to Bizarre, related to the pandemic, his own film projects, he realized that he said, I can't commit to this one. You know, it's it really just like this boutique. Boutique is a common publishing firm, you know, him and I doing it together. He just, he could, could, just couldn't do it. He had need to focus on what he needed to focus on. Still, he, he from beginning to end, we edited it together. You know, he, it has his imprint. So it's also about friendship, but a really deep connection and the honor and the honor of working and learning so much by someone, someone who's a a film editor, because I, I, I certainly have to edit to do a major motion picture. And so I learned a lot about looking at images. I learned a lot about myself. The Curious Society is about providing a solution for the changing economic work of photojournalism and documentary photography. They are a group of people that see the challenges faced by countless photographers, and they're making a choice to do something about it by building a community and supporting a special kind of visual storytelling. That's what I love about The Curious Society, a member-supported nonprofit that has created an organization devoted to the work of today's best photojournalists and documentary photographers. If you have a passion for telling stories with photographs, you can start being a part of this community by becoming a member and joining in on their weekly hangouts on Clubhouse every Tuesday. Find out more by visiting their website at curioussociety.org. This show provides me a way to support photographers producing great work. Though I've interviewed master photographers, there were others who were less well-known, but I felt were as deserving of your attention and your support. I've heard so many stories over the years of how listeners like you have reached out to these people and encouraged and supported them and their work. It's been a gratifying part of what I do. The Charcoal Book Club supports photographers as well by publishing and distributing quality photo books at an affordable price. Books are an important part of how today's photographers get their work out there. And I'm glad to have a relationship with a business that cares about sharing my passion and commitment to photography and photographers. You can be a part of the work that we both do by becoming a Charcoal Book member today and enjoy great titles every month. It's also a flexible service because if you don't like that month's release, you can choose another of their titles of similar value. 
They offer free shipping to the US, Canada, and the UK. It's subsidized elsewhere. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today and remember to use the code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. You know, one of the things that, that I got reinforced looking at your work was the importance of being familiar with your subject. And in this case, it's, it's not just the people, but the environment, because you have shots in there in which you have burned out buildings, empty lots, you know, that are a reflection of sort of the diminishing of, of resources into that, that community. And in the hands of another photographer, the focus would be on those things to the exclusion of the people. And I love how you use that as a storytelling element, as a, as a, a, you know, a visual thing to play off the humanity of the subjects. And that I think that's only possible if you are really familiar with it, because if you just pop in, and you're and you're not familiar with that sort of environment that's what grabs your attention and so the photographs become about you know the poverty about the evidence of crime and crack pipes and all that other stuff that was happening sort of during that time to the exclusion of the people and i really appreciate that about your work because from my own experience i do not see i have not seen any or very little work from the neighborhoods I grew up in in Los Angeles. There's an abundance of stuff in, about hmm. Hollywood, about, you know, Venice, you know, certain parts of the city are, or, you know, more than well mm -hmm. documented, but there are only, you know, very, you know, very few photographers, largely people within that community who have been actively photographing, but whose work has not been showcased to the degree of the others. So when I look at your work, that's, that's a big lesson for me as a photographer that, you know, regardless of where I choose to shoot, but especially when I choose to shoot in a community outside of my own, my responsibility as photographers is not to go just go in there and find some good shots, is to become familiar with not just the people, but the space, because my own inherent biases are going to inform the pictures mm -hmm. I make and I don't make. So I know that you teach. Hmm. So talk to me about how you would impress on a, on a photographer who's starting out about, you know, how to get to that place so they aren't just making pictures for the sake of just making pictures. Um, that's, that's very complex because you I believe you can make pictures just for the sake of making pictures because just like you could sing just because of the fact that you like to sing. I would say, number one, Trust your instincts in some ways. If you see something, for me, it's if I see something that looks either very, un, that I've never seen before, I'm sometimes, I, I might take that picture. You know, it may, may not be a place, but just some, someone doing something. Like, you've never seen anything like this. I am speaking from the vantage as someone who really did not make her living as a photographer. Okay, just for two years, a year and a half I did, but I had a certain grant, but, it, but I, I, it's been my art form. It's what I spend my money on. So um, I'm coming from a, that perspective, okay? However, I would say to, I would recommend to anyone who's passionate, 
interested, curious about photography as their one of their forms of communicating with the world is that number one, remember you have a right to do it. Just your pure desire and interest is enough. No no one needs to ordain you. Um, It's helpful to join a community of other people who encourage you and lift they encourage one another and lift one another up for feedback, opportunities to exhibit, uh, let you know about grants to apply for. That I think it's very, just in order not to quit, I think it's important to find co- community. Okay, that's, that's just your encouragement. Yes, if there are people whose work you admire and you, and cla- you know, I'm an educator, I believe in classes, <laughs> take classes. Okay. But you still do it. Bring your camera and photograph things that you feel drawn to. And and you can use me as a role model, someone who did not understand and had trouble editing her work, that eventually it'll make sense. The time and perspective helps. But there's no one way to do anything, especially among street photographers. There's a, you know, people who say, if it's not uh, what candid, then it's not a street photograph. Well, then my street photographs aren't street photographs. Call them documentary because I choose to usually ask people permission. Your way is fine, and you don't have to be strict with it. You can try other ways. Okay, <laughs> you you can switch it up. But you know you don't have to be so um, a pure. You don't have to be a purist. But if you want to be, you can. It's a lot of it. Like I said, a lot of it is in the editing. I mean, looking through because there's a tendency, especially working digitally, to take many, 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 many images, and and it takes a sensitive, educated. Sometimes it helps have other people look as well. I to see distinguish what stands out from one and the other. Be open to opportunities. You know, I if I if Vanessa didn't say don't be such a snob, I wouldn't have three books published right now. You don't know. <laughs> it's not not it, you, know, you feel like it needs to be the museum and gallery curator that makes a difference in your life. Some t- or. or Sometimes, sometimes it comes from out of left field. Continue to do what it is that makes you feel purposeful in life or just gives you divine, some kind of divine pleasure or, or interest. If you, whether you call it a hobby, whether you call it a passion, whether it's called a, a, a healthy addiction, it's, it's something that somehow touches you to the core. Explore it. Don't be so quick to throw your stuff away. What if I just, you know, I had those boxes. What if I just threw them all away? I really could have. Okay, another suggestion. Whether you're working analog or digitally, keeping your work so it doesn't disappear is very important. Because <laughs> okay. digital platforms change. And if you don't print it out archivally so it doesn't disintegrate, it will not be there in 30, 40 years. 
okay, people, there, there is a interest in, in those who are working in analog film. Like, if you're going to go through the, all the trouble of printing a picture, do it on um, gelatin fiber paper. Do it on fiber paper. Don't waste it on resin paper. It's the same amount of work. It just, one washes faster than the other, but one will be valuable and last, could last for centuries, and the other one is next to garbage. Time goes by. I just, I, I think number one, do it because you want to do it. Approach your subjects from a pure heart or as well as you can. And, and find community of people who who help you help one another. Because one of your one of the things that I believe is one of your strengths is the fact that you are very genuine, and I think that that's one of the reasons why you were able to get the photographs that you did. Because in the clubs, you get very intimate, very raw photographs of people, you know, doing drugs and you know, engaging in sex acts. But also on the streets in in Bushwick. You know, you've got you've got a community of people that are very skittish about a camera being pointed in their uh, in their direction, especially when they don't understand who or why is making the the photographs. Tell me about that part of you know your 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 skill set because I think it's you know some people think oh it's you know either just naturally inclined to it, and other you know other people think oh is that something that I can. I can learn if I don't naturally possess it. What are your thoughts on that? I think people can learn. <laughs> I think they can absolutely. You know, I've taken photography. I'm not. I'm not a naive. I've taken photography classes. It's just learning how to look and how to edit. And, and I've taken lighting classes. And it doesn't appeal to me. But I've I've taken work, workshops and classes throughout my life. Yeah, like even like a sport. You know, yes, there are some people who are more naturally inclined towards things, but some, some people come to it from another way. I do think, well, I, I attribute the fact that my dad was passionate about photography as, as also fixing cars, and and he was a printer by trade. The fact that he took joy in photography, and he took really great pictures. That was an influence, of course, and my grandfather photographed, never showed showed work, but it was, it was an influence. It's something that's people do. Now I'm losing myself from the, the, the real question that you're asking. Would you repeat the question? I'm going to. In, in, you know, in terms about whether or not being able to gain people's trust and, you know, and gain their trust, is that just a natural skill or is it something that what someone can learn? I think, okay. Well, I, when I, I, part of this going to Berlin, the, the, uh, the part of the grant was I did workshops with youth, high school youth. And the kids would ask me, how do you, you know, how do you do it? I could never do it. I said, okay, just watch me. And I just went up to somebody. And even with different <laughs> language, you know, gestured, may I take their photograph? And if I, we sense that they spoke English, I, I would say, why? And if they said, no, it's okay. <laughs> so, and, and I, and I witnessed the students, the high schoolers actually going up and, I said, "Oh my God! You went up, you you you, you went up to a man working in front of a, a his train, right in front of the train, and got him to stop and do his portrait." Or people on a on a on a on a bridge that I would have thought twice about genuinely asking. Okay, so I, I, yes, I 
think there are ways, just like public speaking, <laughs> the more you do it, the better you get at doing it. And, and, but if, if you'd like, uh, a tip that I would have, if you would like to try to take a photograph of somebody that you don't know, that you're seeing in a public or private or on the street or even a more private session, session is going up to the person and say, may I take your photograph? And if you, and if you, and it might be, I, and sincerely saying, remind me of a coach I had in high school, or I've never seen something like this before, or your shoes are great. You know, really say <laughs> what it is, why you want to photograph them. And, you know, no, no BS, just say it. And if they say no, say fine thank you have have a nice day you know yeah. like really it's just and and believe it or not think about X, how many times in your life has a stranger come up to you and he has to take your their photograph even with a cell phone mm -hmm. very few but, mm -hmm. but very rare so it's a very rare situation and I have subjects that I'm not so comfortable approaching or I feel like they need privacy, like someone who's really down and out or doesn't seem to be conscious, or, you know, things like that. Or having a private moment like, you know, you know a funeral, come on. It's just like, so don't you have to just be there? Or many times you have to just be a person. But in the past, during the height of the pandemic, and it's not over, but during the height of it, I did walk by somebody on the streets of New York who was on, on, on the ground, but she actually looked gorgeous. Even though she was like, obviously living on the street or spending a lot of her time on the street. And it's not a photograph I would usually take, but I said, may I take your photograph? I said, no, I said, I just wanted to tell you, you look beautiful and have a lovely day. And I started walking on, she called me, she said, you can take my picture. Hmm. And it was sincere. Yeah, she did. She emanated beauty and confidence. So, but it, that might not be the photograph you're doing. But, but you, you can. That would be one way to ask. Just it's a, it's a. If it is something you would like to do or like to try, you can get better at it. Or, or take yeah. rejection. You know, you might take it as rejection. Don't take it as rejection. You know, it's just. Oh, or, or people, yes, it's true. People say, how about now versus decades ago? Yes, people now, I will, someone will, in Berlin, there's a woman dining with her, two other people, and she, she, I, it was, she, I don't even know what language she spoke, but I just, and she was just lovely. And I asked, and I gestured to photograph her. She said, no, she said, for Instagram, I said, Oh no, it's not it's my film camera No. Oh, okay. You know, because people are self-conscious about being on social media. Or or they they may or may not be. And of course, especially with children, if a child is the street when I was photographing in, in Bushwick then, you would see more children on the street by them by themselves. You don't see that nowadays as much. In New York City, when there was a young man named a boy named Eaton Pats that went to to school one day and took the school bus by himself and disappeared. Never came back. New York City was never the same. You know, mm. you don't you don't let your child out, uh, 
uh, and so you, always with a minor, ask whoever they're with if it's okay. And if they say no, say thank you. I understand. Don't take it personally. When you look at your work and you see all the things that you've done, what would you consider to be your photographic superpower? <laughs> What's my super? Okay, my photo, my photographic superpower. I have a, I have a perky eye. I catch at off moments, even mm. if somebody is, is conscious that I'm photographing them. It's not posed, and I seem to be able to catch the second after. So I, 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 I have a, I have an eye for the decisive moment, an excellent eye for composition. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I love that, and that's spot on. I love that. That's great. Okay. Yeah. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, uh -huh. and it can be uh -huh. anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? I encourage you to, to, to interview my friend Tequila Minsky because she's, she doesn't have a website, Tequila Bad Girl, but she's a real everyday New York City street photographer and she publishes for like the the um, free newspapers does articles and she's a real just everyday photographer and she writes stories and she, I feel like she's underknown as much as her and she's out there she's underknown in in the art world and undervalued but of course I'm gonna go with my friends but with a name like that she shouldn't yeah, be yeah, yes. <laughs> Well, Meryl, thank you so much, and uh, congrats on the uh, the book and, and much success with it. Thank you. The same to you about it next. I really appreciate it. And may we see each other together in real time real soon. God willing. Thanks to all of you who continue to support the Candle Frame financially, especially over this past year. Your contributions, both big and small, have made a big difference for us, and I can't thank you enough. And if you haven't already, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter today. You can do that by contributing $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash thecandidframe. Just $5 a month from you could and will make a big difference. Thank you so much for your continued support. Thanks to Meryl for joining us. Find out more about her and her work by visiting MerylMeisler.com. And if you purchase her book, Paradise Lost and Found, use our Amazon affiliate link, which you'll find in the show notes or our website. And remember to check out the Curious Society at CuriousSociety.org. They are building a wonderful community, promoting and supporting exceptional photojournalism and documentary photography. Buy the first issue of the magazine or become a member and check out their weekly discussion on Tuesday afternoons on the Clubhouse app. Your thoughts and feelings about this show matter. If you haven't already, please write a review on Apple Podcasts or any service you use to listen to podcasts. It helps us to stand out among the many thousands of podcasts that are out there. Your voice makes a difference. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time or recurring donation via PayPal. We also provide a series of eBooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge and another way for you to support the show. 
And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app, available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity in the past, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. This is our last episode of the season, and we at The Candid Frame have greatly appreciated your kindness and support over the past year. We hope that the new year brings you good health and joy. We'll be with you again for a brand new season in 2022. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.